Thanks, everyone, for joining us. My name is Sterling Audi, Software Technology Analyst here at J.P. Morgan. Very happy to have with me the management team from Everbridge. We have David Meredith, CEO, Patrick Brickley, who is CFO. And uh, before we get started, just a reminder to participants, uh, in order to ask a question, just click on the Q&A button and enter your question that way, and I'll include it as part of our, uh, part of our session. Now, I really thought that my virtual background was cool, but it does not hold a candle to uh, Mr. Meredith and, and kind of the, uh, the console that you would see from Everbridge. David, uh, actually on a serious note, first of all, you know, thank you on behalf of uh, a lot of the people that have, have benefited through this crisis and pandemic from, you know, the use of your product. Uh, maybe just to, to kick us off, maybe just uh, a comment or two about what we're seeing with your uh, background here. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Sterling. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here today and with J.P. Morgan. It's been a really good day of meetings. The uh, background is our um, visual command center. Uh, it's part of our critical event management suite of solutions. So we have 22,000 risk data feeds. So we have more information about what's going on around the world and including hyperlocal information than anyone. And we're able to curate all that data through AI, ML, and multiple 24 by, center, 24 by 7 risk centers with human experts that are case analysts working with the data. So we're able to filter through all the noise and get rid of the false positives and false negatives and figure out are there things happening that affect uh, things that you care about, if it's your people, your customers, your supply chain or operations, or your brand or reputation. And we're able to present that on this visual command center. And then we also can integrate lots of other data sources if there's any that we don't have and we can plug it in. So it's a single pane of glass where you can use to manage a unified platform across your entire enterprise. And we have similar solutions we're doing with the U.S. Army to help them across 400 bases in 70 countries, uh, public, private sector. So it's people love to see it because it's just so fascinating to see the information flowing through and the maps and everything. And, and so thanks for pointing that out. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think it's fascinating to, to look at. And for those that are that are joining us that are new to the Everbridge story, maybe give just a, a high level overview in terms of what are the solutions that that you offer and who are the core customers that are utilizing your platform? Yeah, thank you. So uh, we have three major segments. One are uh, enterprise customers and two is uh, government and three is healthcare. So on the enterprise customer side, we have over 5,000 enterprise customers today across all industry verticals and uh, all parts of the world. And we have a suite of capabilities we call critical event management or CEM. And again, critical event management uh, are two things. On the one hand, there's things that you care about, your people, your operations, your supply chain your uh, brand reputation. And on the other hand, there are things that can happen that can impact that in an, in an adverse way. It could be a uh, extreme weather event like a hurricane or a cyclone, terrorism, active shooter, cyber attack, IP, IT outage, uh, could even be a pandemic. And so when those two overlap, that then becomes a critical event. And we have essentially done a digital transformation of the entire end-to-end process. What do you do before, during, and after? And then we manage that with multiple um, software as a service capabilities. We have 10 different SaaS uh, modules that make up our CEM suite. Uh, and then we do things like crisis management. We have all of your protocols uh, digitized, and then we manage that uh, in an automated way. 
We have the data elements that we talked about, um, which allow you to know what's happening and, and trigger those events. We manage all the communication, the orchestration uh, across 100 different communication modalities. And then after the fact, we have all the analysis and data to figure out what happened, what you need to do better. And we've developed hundreds and uh, hundreds of use cases to help you run your business better so you actually can save money, so you're doing well while also doing good and protecting your people and assets. Uh, we also work with over 1,500 healthcare, provide, healthcare companies across the ecosystem, over 3,700 first provider or uh, frontline providers, first responders. And then on the government side, uh, we work with many cities, states, and entire countries. So uh, we've got some of the largest, most populous states like New York, California, Florida. Uh, we've also got uh, 10 countries where we're doing entire countrywide deals, uh, including recent wins in Australia, Singapore, Peru, multiple countries in Europe. Uh, and we've also uh, got New Zealand and some of our countries like Norway, New Zealand, Iceland, uh, are doing a really great job in terms of managing the coronavirus threat, and in some cases, which we can talk about today, like Norway, using our technology with some really innovative use cases to help keep their people safe. You know, I imagine that there's got to be an immense amount of pressure to make sure the solution is running. I, I get annoyed if my email's slow. You know, this solution and its communication are needed literally during life and death situations. So you know, how has the reliability of the system been and what are you seeing in terms of some of the usage statistics as you've managed through COVID-19? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's great talking to you, Sterling, because you really understand our business and you hit on some of the key points. So we did a major project to move our capabilities into the cloud. So we are the most scalable, most resilient, most redundant provider in the industry. We're, we've created this category. We're really the leader. And it's never been more important than right now. So the level of volumes that we're seeing with this pandemic are exceed anything we've ever seen in our company's history going all the way back to 9-11. Um, and the good news is the system is performing as designed and as it's supposed to. So even with a dramatic increase in volumes, uh, we've had a, effectively 100% uptime throughout this crisis. So uh, just specifically, you know, we, we manage a lot of communication. So communications specifically related to COVID-19 if the number grows every week, last time I looked, it was over 335 million already and counting. Um, so, for example, if you look at like Hurricane Dorian, that was probably 15 million messages. Um, so having a critical event that is all over the world at the same time, it's persistent, it's ongoing, uh, and it's um, very critical. Uh, it's definitely um, putting us to our paces, but the systems responded extremely well, and we're pleased about that. I, I still feel that investors don't fully appreciate the difficulty in kind of guaranteeing or, or ensuring is probably a better word that the messages get delivered to the intended recipients. You know, I get questions like, well, wait a minute, it's a text message. It's an email message. How hard can that be to, to get delivered? What are some of the challenges or some of the things that you do that maybe your competition has not been able to do, you know, to ensure that you can get, not only that delivery, but also the feedback loop, uh, you know, from, from those recipients. Yeah, that's a great point. And um, these are some of the differentiators when you're the high quality provider and you're the leader in terms of uh, reliability and you've got to be able to draw those points of differentiation. So, for example, um, you know, we have a hundred different 
modalities, as I said. So any type of form of communication, whether it's TTY, landline, fax, messaging, uh, everything. So um, we go through our supply chain in terms of how that message will get delivered from the person who sends it to where it's delivered. And we make sure at every step of the way we're either 2N or 3N, which means that we have redundancy across the board. A lot of times you think you have redundancy, but really one carrier is wholesaling another carrier. And when they go down, you thought you had redundancy, but the whole thing goes down. We're very careful to make sure we always have true redundancy, in some cases, even up to 3N. We also, um, we're multinational, we're a global provider. So in many cases, um, when you have an emergency in another country, uh, we have something that we call being globally local. And so we make that added investment at work to, uh, if it's in another country, in many cases, we'll be able to send the messages from inside the country with a uh, local country code. Because when you're sending the messages from the outside, which might be a little uh, cheaper or easier for some of our competitors, um, the carrier will look at, you go from zero messages to a million it looks like a denial of service attack or something's happening and they, they shut it down until they can figure it out. Once they figure it out, it's too late because the critical event's over. So um, we've just, over the year, many years and many different experiences, we've figured out all the different uh, areas where we need to um, invest to have that at the end of the day, just to know when I need that communication to go out, it's going to be there. And we do much more than just communication now. As I said, it all starts with the data and going through and curating. It's a massive curation problem to look at 22,000 risk data feeds. We recently launched a coronavirus-specific data feed at the beginning of this, which has been um, very heavily used by our customers. And being able to go through that 24 by 7 and, and curate all that information. Uh, and then also managing all the orchestration. We're, we're integrated with 225 um, other services and platforms. So having those out-of-the-box integrations allows us to do things now like actually helping companies return to work. So um, if you look at those integrations, we're integrated with your calendaring system. So if you, and we have a mobile app where we do wellness checks. If the employee says, uh, I've got symptoms and I've tested positive, then right away we can look at the system and say, who else have they been in a meeting with the last week? We're integrated with the physical access controls. What floors has he checked in on? We're integrated with the visitor management system, the travel management system, the travel itineraries. So we're very quickly in an automated way being able to tell who else has been exposed and then fire off the protocols and the communications to get those people isolated to minimize the impact of uh, spreading the virus as you have people start to return to work. So these are examples where our capabilities are helpful from a contact tracing perspective for the company, as well as all the normal critical event management that we do. So that's a great segue in terms of that contact management. There's been a, a lot of, uh, let's say, media uh, focus around things from Apple and from Google, you know, along these lines. So where are you in the conversation, not only from a company standpoint, but also a country standpoint? Yeah, so um, it's great that Apple and Google are, you know, putting frameworks out there that will help uh, to provide some common ways of looking at the problem and particularly help with the public sector side. I do think when you're looking at a company, um, I don't know that the company can always wait for the contact tracers from the state to get to them um, because you need to know right away who's been exposed and you've got to get those people isolated. And so the ability to close that loop, I think we have a very differentiated set of capabilities for the companies. At the government level, 
Um, you know, some of what we're doing right now in Norway, you know, I referenced that earlier, is, is I think very innovative what they're doing with the system where um, we have, with our population warning system, they're able to set thresholds and you can look at a map like the one behind me and they can draw a polygon on that, create an incident zone and say, we want to keep the density low there. So really using it to help with social distancing and they can set thresholds. So if looking at the people per square foot, if it gets over a certain threshold, it'll automatically send messages to those people and say, hey, too many people too close together need to disperse. Uh, so it's helping to reinforce in a systematic way social distancing. They're able to communicate with the entire population of the country, plus all the visitors in the country in multiple languages. Recently sent out five and a half million messages, went through with no congestion. Uh, and then also communicate and coordinate their citizens that are stranded in other countries, help them get back. Uh, but the concept of the incident zones where you can go back in time and look at who might have been in an area three days ago and send a message or someone that's coming into the incident zone versus someone that's already there, get very good. But the piece that's really interesting about that is it's all done while respecting the privacy and the anonymity of the people. So there's no PII or personal identifiable information to tie to a specific person. And I know that's very important because there's a lot of resistance on contact tracing is we've got to protect people's privacy. And as a company that's very focused on uh, safety, security, and, you know, we don't do marketing, we're very careful with the data, and we always respect the privacy of the people. And that's an area where we think there's ways to do both and still be able to help keep, keep people safer. I think that's a critical point. I think, you know, one of the questions I get is, how can you do that? You've got my cell phone number. You've got my name. So how is it not PII? How are you able to do that and maintain anonymity? Yeah, Patrick, do you want to get in on this? I know you've been doing a lot with the European team. Yeah, sure. Uh, so it depends on on how they implement our solution. So the, the Norway example that David just described, the way that we make that work is with some of our location-based alerting technology where we're able to put software, our software, proprietary software with over 75 patents around this specifically into a telco and the software does the work. The software helps to identify uh, where is that density and enable a polygon that's visible to our customer. Uh, so that they can target messages and, and send you know, targeted scripts to wherever they draw that polygon. But so the information that they receive is high level. It does not pull through personal information. It can, we can pull through descriptors like, um, you know, is there SIM card from uh, the local area or not? So that our customer can get some information but not a great deal, uh, and, and with that could all be restricted as well. So from a, for, for our customers, it's not uh, it's limited information, but enough for them to take action that's very impactful on a, a real-time situation. And for the citizens or the folks receiving the information from our customers, their privacy has not been compromised. One of the questions that we got from the audience is, you mentioned some COVID-19 specific products like David, you mentioned the, the data feed. How do you, mon are you charging for these separately? Are you monetizing for them separately? Or are they included as part of the base uh, that a customer is already paying for? 
Yeah, so let me just take a step back and kind of frame out the phases that we've had with COVID so far, um, because there have been four distinct phases in terms of how we've been working with our customers. The first phase started when the virus was in Asia, and we had multinational customers. We had previously launched CEM for supply chain, critical event management for your supply chain. And so we had customers that were coming to us saying, look, we need to help manage and make sure our supply chain is secure. And if not, we've got to go to fallback options and go through all of our protocols there. And so that was the initial phase. Um, then as the virus started to spread, we had customers all over the world saying, we've got to track where the virus is, where have our people been? And when they overlap, we need to know that. We need to also track, are there other disruptions coming from the virus, whether it's a production stoppage or travel cancellations or other events or other guidelines from governments. So keeping track of all that very dynamic information, and then where's the virus spreading? Has it impacted my people? If so, do I quarantine them? Who else have they been in contact with? That sort of thing. That was the second phase. The third phase started, if you remember, uh, Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, shut down the NBA for the season. And it was the same night that Tom Hanks announced that he was sick with coronavirus. And at that point, it was a very sharp change where now you saw companies saying, all right, we basically have to very quickly get to a full work from home situation and a shutdown. And they needed help on how do we operationalize that with minimum impact on our operations and then the ability to keep track of and protect our people when they're not in the office, but they're all remote all over the place. Uh, that's when we really saw the volume start to spike up because that was a very heavy, intense period of activity. Now we're entering the fourth phase, which is We've got to get back to work, um, whether it's a company getting their employees back to the office or it's a government getting their citizens back to public spaces safely. Help us do that. So going to work from home was throwing a light switch. Um, getting everyone back is more like a dimmer on the light switch where you're going to have to ease into it, and it can get very complex. We just closed Cisco as a new CEM customer last quarter. They've got 500 offices all over the world. So. Every one of those countries, every one of those states, different protocols, different guidelines they have to follow. They need an audit trail. How do they keep track of all that? How do they map where the virus is? Um, have the ability to check in with the customers, get the wellness checks, uh, manage the isolation where everyone is, the different time sequencing. It gets very complex. The system can do all that for them, and the system's always on, always watching. As far as your question about the coronavirus-specific things, we initially launched a coronavirus data feed to supplement our 22,000 risk data elements. Um, we then launched a, during that second phase, we launched what we called COVID-19 Shield Solutions, which was uh, something we could have up and running within 48 hours with our software to help with knowing your risks, protecting your people, protecting your operations and supply, specific use cases around COVID, and specific quick start templates to get you going. But that's still our base software technology. Uh, and now we've launched Return to Work, uh, which is additional software and quick start templates and use cases to help with the return to work process. So the economics of it are you're still buying our software as a service. It's still a SaaS solution, uh, but you're coming in with predefined templates and use cases and best practices that allow you to very quickly drive benefits on the specific use case that's most problematic for people right now, which is managing through the pandemic. If a customer comes to you today and says, I'm all in, I want CEM, they're a brand new customer, what does it take to, to implement a, a customer like that in terms of time frame? And, you know, is there any on-premise requirement to, to get a full implementation up and running? Yeah, that, that's a really big issue that we're seeing with, uh, you know, a lot of my friends at other companies where 
Uh, it is difficult if you have to get on-prem right now to do things. Fortunately for us, we are a cloud-based software-as-a-service model, so there's very little friction in our implementation, and we're able to implement our customers remotely. And so for the vast majority of, you know, all of our core products and services, that's not a problem for us. And we've had, and in fact, we've been throwing a lot of implementation resources at this because our customers, you know, typically they might buy it and they have a sort of a relaxed time frame. In this case, you're saying we need it up like yesterday. So we're able to get it up very quickly. As I said, with the COVID-19 Shield solution, we can have it up and running in 48 hours. So very quickly. Um, now, there are a few exceptions to that, and we've talked about, in some cases, some of the very complex countrywide types of deals, uh, some of, a few other edge cases um, with some of the companies we've acquired over the years does require some on-prem work. Um, but, you know, more than 95% of our business is uh, SaaS and much less friction on the implementation. So, Patrick, you know, tying this to, together, how would you kind of characterize the you know, the, the pace of, of demand in terms of deal closings and how much of this, if any, is actually a pull forward in demand and could that actually create some tougher compares or growth headwinds in either the back half of the year or beginning of next year? Yeah, thanks, Sterling. There are cross currents, as you may have heard um, David talk about uh, recently, where on the one hand, we had a really strong Q4, uh, an inflection point for CEM, and we came into 2020 with a lot of momentum with CEM and, and some other growing opportunities, and then COVID happened. And COVID happened really and impacted our business in the last few weeks of the quarter. And uh, I think we saw we saw both uh, impacts, positive and negative. Some deals were, were very um, clearly pulled forward from future quarters where it was uh, very vivid, uh, the urgency to upsell to CEM, get it turned on and help customers, even some of those in the, in the hardest hit verticals to manage through the impact of COVID to spin down their operations quickly and effectively and further to be able to spin them back up uh, as quickly and effectively as possible uh, when that, when the time is right. So we saw that. We also saw uh, a couple of examples of folks who said, uh, you know, they're a little too busy uh, dealing with COVID to to, to uh, implement a solution that helps them deal with COVID. Uh, and so I, that's part of what I think as as so we got the kind of the upfront and there's a whole lot of increased uh, awareness and interest and, and a lot of inbound interest. And then I think for a number of those folks who uh, were too overwhelmed in those last couple of weeks of March, they'll eventually you know, things will come down for them and, and they'll be able to come back around. Uh, so we, we think net net it's, it's, um, it's an acceleration of our, what, when we came into 2020 thinking was an opportunity for us, a strategic opportunity, create this category, increase awareness of CEM, increase awareness of Everbridge. We think this has just accelerated that uh, everything that, that that's relevant to COVID it, it, it's the critical event. Everything that our software does to help customers through COVID helps them through other uh, uh, critical situations as well. So net-net, um, it should be positive. We do um, we do worry, though, you know, in an environment where most of our peers pulled guidance, we raised for the full year. Uh, but that said, we still don't want to get ahead of our skis. And uh, we think 
God forbid, if we're on the precipice here of a, of a really bad economic decline, um, that could have impacts across the board. So we'll wait and see what that looks like. In the meantime, we're excited that we're helping. We're excited that we're bringing solutions that are helping people get through this effectively. And uh, we do see uh, strong demand for that as we head into Q2 and, and look out uh, through the end of this year and even into next year. When you look at customers that you've won during kind of critical events or as a result of critical events, is the stickiness of that customer any different than a quote unquote normal customer that you win? Yeah. You know, we have a very good retention rate. Um, We say over 95% gross retention and over 110% net retention. And uh, I think last quarter our, First retention was, you know, at the, at the good end of that range. So, uh, what, when we see customers that do leave, half the time it's because their company got acquired, something like that. Um, and then the ones that, the very few that do, it's, you know, they're really not using the system. So what we found is that, uh, when customers have their hands on the system and they're using it, they really don't leave for the most part. So I think that, that's sort of the driver. So when they're using it, they have a specific use case that they're bringing it in for, and they're actually putting their hands on the system and using it. They're very unlikely to attrite. And um, one of the things that's actually somewhat exciting about what's happening here, we're a mission-driven company. Our mission is to keep people safe and keep operations running faster. That's why we're here. That's what we do. So, you know, as I mentioned, that third phase after everything started to shut down, we had about 550 customers call us who we almost never talked to. So it's that one little segment of customer group that we just, you know, in some cases we hadn't talked to them in years. And so they called us and said, hey, we need your help. We, we have to use the system now or we have to extend it to Europe or we have to, you know, all the things they needed help with. So we actually feel really good that there are customers, that, that little pocket of customers that we barely spoke to, most of our customers do, and now – we're engaged with them, so we, we feel like that's actually really good for them to stay on because when they're using the system, typically uh, it's much it's even stickier. One of the other questions we got from the audience is, when you look across your 5,000-plus customer base, what percentage are realistic candidates to, to move to CEM? And I'm going to add to that. Is there trigger points that you look at and say, oh, this customer has gotten to this level. It's a natural to, to get them to upsell to CEM. Yeah, I think, well, when we say over 5,000, we say enterprise customers. So we have many more customers that are smaller business customers. So um, I would say the majority of the 5,000 are could be CEM customers. Now, we have you know, a lighter version of CEM all the way to a super heavy version of CEM. And there's different bundles and packages within that. There's a certain amount of modules you have to have to qualify. And the pricing is based on, you know, so a smaller, on the lower end, the CEM deal won't be as big. Our, our biggest CEM deal was over $2 million uh, last year. Uh, so um, so we think a lot of them are candidates for that, and the majority of them, because we've already filtered out the smallest of the small. We have not launched CEM in every market yet, so um, we are planning to launch CEM in Europe around mid-year. So our European team is chomping at the bit, and they're already having conversations and starting to starting to fill the funnel for that. And we'll do a big event um, in the not-too-distant future where we will formally launch CEM for Europe. So as we open up new markets, we'll see 
more and more of those customers will light up with the ability to go and, and start to convert them. So uh, we do, in general, you know, we have 10 SaaS products we can sell. And on average, for our enterprise customer base, we've sold 1.9. Uh, so we see one growth vector is cross-selling and upselling, and we're getting really good at that. Um, another one is, again, just adding new logos. We have five out of 50 states. We have 10 out of 200 countries. We have five out of 27 or 28 states in India, and we have about 31% of the Fortune 1000. Uh, we see tremendous headroom to grow in all those categories. On the healthcare side, we've got about 27% of all the healthcare beds in the country. So, um, you know, we're modeling out to continue to grow that. Right now, we cover about 550 million human beings that we protect with our system. You know, it's B to B to C, B to G to C. Uh, and we, we you know, we've got a goal to get that to 3 billion over the next few years. And, you know, as you model it out, we don't need huge penetration in those markets to be able to get there. And there's very few SaaS companies in the world that have that kind of global scale and reach, particularly doing as something as high reputation as what we're doing. When you look at your CEM customers, what's the average ARR for a customer like that? It, you know, it, it ranges um, from, like you said, it can be over $2 million or it could be $300,000. So um, I would say a rough rule of thumb, you know, we think on average 5 to 7x in terms of if we can get a customer from, you know, a normal customer to a CEM customer. Some will be much bigger. Some might be a little smaller, but kind of rule of thumb, five to seven X uh, leverage there. And you talked a couple of times on, on some of the international activity that you've got. What is the international opportunity? And, and maybe, you know, take the time to talk about the EU in particular and the timing of when you would expect that to, to really kind of come in for the business. Sure. So, so we have our critical event management platform. And when we do entire countrywide deals, it's, we call it public warning. Um, very similar to CEM, but it's different, different language because that's what the industry uses. So the European Union has mandated that all EU countries need to have a platform like this for public warning by Im- implemented and installed by June of 2022. So we currently have the leadership position. We've got 10 countries around the world, including four or five in Europe. Uh, no one else has that. Uh, we recently completed the acquisition for One to Many, which was kind of our main competitor for those types of uh, countrywide population warning deals. And we've got the most complete platform. It's a hybrid platform. allows you to do location-based SMS, cell broadcast, group-based alerting, uh, and kind of a combination of all the above for these countries. So um, we are starting to get RFIs now from the countries. Our view always was that this year – we didn't expect to see a lot of revenue because they have till June of 2022, but we did expect to be engaged with them on RFIs and educating the countries. And that is happening. I think the question now that we don't have enough data to know is, you know, will the COVID-19 pandemic cause these countries to move faster? Because there are use cases that can help them with COVID-19 while also checking the box for the regulatory requirement to meet that mandate. Um, there's also a, a mandate in India for their states uh, to uh, have technology like ours, and we're already installed in some of the states there. And those are also a big opportunity for us as well, and, and we continue to uh, have a, a funnel and opportunities that we're working in India. And then while we're working those, you know, we continue to win states in other regions. We announced uh, that we won Peru, uh, Australia, Singapore. We've added New Zealand. 
So um, we've got pretty good coverage, and now we have our first office in the Middle East, and uh, we think there's opportunity there as well. When you look at the EU opportunity, just to maybe give investors a, a sense, how much revenue in, in, in total does the EU, you know, uh, countrywide notification really represent? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, each country is, is somewhat unique in terms of how they're doing this. And, um, you know, if you look at some of our other deals, they're kind of low eight figures. Uh, and it depends on the size of the country, the population, uh, which components they want in the solution. And then also the way our solution works is the government buys the front end and then we go to the carriers and the government encourages the carriers to install our back end uh, to help it work better and help increase the reach of it. And so when we win all the carriers and the government, we can you know double or triple the total uh, deal opportunity. So, some of that you have to factor in. How good are we? Now, I think how good are we with the carriers after we win the government? Um, I think having one to many will help us because that's something they're really good at is selling into the carriers. Uh, and then also um, there's an important concept, and this is really a moat that's a competitive moat that we have around our business, which is something we call network effects. And network effects means you have to be there because that's where everyone else is. Um, Uber is an example of a network effects business. If you want to ride, you're going to do Uber because there's more drivers. If you're a driver, you want to be there and get more passengers. And so everything else aside, that's that's a great draw. So, you know, if you look at, for example, the state of Florida, we won the state of Florida. We recently got a five-year renewal on that. But within three years of winning the state of Florida, we had won uh, 65 out of 67 counties. We won hundreds of cities, uh, first responders healthcare providers, universities, airports, train stations, 50 corporations, uh, I think 100 statewide departmental agencies. So we created this regional resiliency ecosystem in the state of Florida. So when there's a hurricane coming to Florida now, not only do we have the 22,000 risk data elements, we have the data from pretty much everybody in Florida, uh, and we know more about what's happening there than anybody else. And, And that data is it's beneficial to the customers. And we have something called the Everbridge Network, where our customers can share data on a private network to help help each other out. So right now we have healthcare providers sharing data on a private network around the coronavirus. Um, we have a with the City of London Police Force, they have almost 400 organizations, public and private, where they're sharing data on the Everbridge private network. The largest uh, transit authority in the United States, uh, second largest in the world, is the New York uh, Transit Authority. Uh, which is a CEM customer, and they're sharing data with public and private uh, entities around them in terms of helping them be more efficient and, and collaborate. So um, that network effect, so we're doing, we've done that at the state level. What's really exciting is we're doing that now for entire countries. So Singapore, you know, we're winning the telcos, winning the banks, winning the other um, industry verticals. And so if you think about if we can roll up the countries in the European Union and then have those network effects, it's a it's a very powerful growth driver for us for many years to come. Absolutely. With that, David Patrick, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it, appreciate it, and thank you for all your efforts to uh, to try to keep us all safe and healthy. Thank you, Sterling. Thanks, JP Morgan. Thank you, Sterling.